Last week, we started a brand new series that we're going to be in throughout the fall that we have simply called Finishing Strong, How to Be Prepared for the Days Ahead and to Overcome. And this is a study in the book of 2 Timothy. And actually, it is not a book, it is a letter. We call it a book for whatever reason, but it's actually a letter. It's the second letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his young spiritual son, Timothy, who at that time was the overseeing pastor of the church in the ancient city of Ephesus. He is under incredible attack. He is greatly disturbed and discouraged himself. And Paul is writing this letter to encourage him to fight the battle, to keep fighting the good fight of faith. Now Paul himself is writing this from a prison cell in Rome while on death row. Paul is literally just weeks away from being executed for his faith in Jesus Christ. And knowing that he is about to meet the Lord, he's making final preparations for his departure. And part of those preparations is leaving final instructions for Timothy and really for all believers throughout time of what they can expect in the days that they are living in, how to be prepared to face them, how to overcome adversities that they will face, and to finish strong. As I said to you last week, and we'll get to our text in a moment, but as I said to you last week, we have no idea what the future holds for the United States of America. More specifically, we have no idea what the future holds for believers in the United States of America. But if where we are right now and the direction that we are currently heading in are any indication, we are in for some very difficult and rough storms ahead. And we know that. Yes, we are to pray and believe for the best, but we need to prepare for the worst. We need to believe God that there is going to be healing in this land that turns this nation around. We need to pray for that, but we need to prepare for the worst. The Bible says that a prudent man sees danger ahead hides himself in the presence of God. A foolish man presses on and is destroyed. We need to take time to prepare ourselves for whatever might come in Jesus' mighty name. Because I'm going to tell you, this is a test you're not going to be able to cram for in the last minute. You're either going to come into these days fully prepared and overcome or you are not going to be prepared and be overwhelmed and defeated. We need to take the time to be ready for whatever comes in Jesus' name. And that's why we're taking this fall to work through this incredible letter that is almost entirely devoted to that subject matter. What we need to finish strong, to finish well in Jesus' name. And last week we opened up with the first two verses where the Apostle Paul laid out four provisions for all believers that God has given so that we can finish strong. If we're going to finish strong, we need to know the purpose of God. We're going to need to know a direction that's part of that purpose, is knowing the direction He's taking in, defining who we are as believers. We need to know the power of God, which is the grace of God, 
that is sufficient for everything we face in life. We need to know the pardon of God because even though we know we want to please Him, we're going to fall short of that from time to time. And we need to know that if we confess our sins, He will abundantly pardon. How many of you are thankful for that? And then fourth, we need to know the peace of God that passes all understanding. Because the days that we're entering into are going to mess with you emotionally. But if you have the peace of God on your heart and your mind, you won't be making emotional decisions, but you'll be able to make godly decisions, even if it puts you in harm's way, because you know that it's what God has commanded, and you know He's going to make a way where there seems to be no other way. All right? So with that in mind, let's take a look now. 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. Now this is the verse we're going to concentrate on. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. I want to share with you, in the context of this series, a message I'm simply entitling, Getting Your House in Order. Father, help us to get our house in order for the days ahead. In Jesus' name. And everyone said amen and amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him you love him. And then you can be seated. Hey, there is a sign that is hanging in our kitchen that some of you have probably seen in stores that you shop in. Some of you may even have this sign hanging in your house somewhere. But it simply says, home is where our story begins. Home is where our story begins, and that is the one thing that all of us have in common. We don't have a lot in common, but one thing we do have in common is that our story began at home. Now, we don't all share the same story. In fact, for some of you, your family story reads like a drama. For others of you, your family story reads like a comedy. For others of you... Um, your family story reads like fiction, and in some cases, science fiction with all the space cadets you've got going on in your home. Sadly, some of you, your family story reads like a tragedy. For some of you, it even reads like a horror. And my heart goes out to you because I know that there are many broken men and women who came from a very difficult home life. I understand. But everyone's story begins at home. For better or worse, every one of us have been influenced in a very profound way by the home that we were raised in. And sometimes you didn't even pick up on it. I remember the very first time that I saw myself on video. I was shocked at the mannerisms that I had picked up from my father. I wouldn't have ever imagined that even his mannerisms I would have picked up on. I know I could pick up on other things, but even the way that I carry myself, the way that I walk, it all was picked up from my father. It's unbelievable. 
And it's for that reason that I believe one of the greatest mistakes we as parents, and as you're going to see in a moment, grandparents can make is underestimating the transformative power of passing on a godly legacy and heritage to our children. And I don't want us to be a church that underestimates that any longer, but actually understands the significant impact that passing on a godly heritage and a godly legacy to our children really is, so that we would lean into this this incredible opportunity that God has given to us as parents and grandparents so that we might influence the next generation in a proper way. Believe it or not, in God's economy, in God's order of all things, the ability to finish strong in life that we're talking about in this season actually begins at home. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but in the beginning, I mean in the very beginning, God did not create first a church. He did not create a pastor. He did not create a Sunday school teacher. He did not create a student ministries pastor or a children's pastor. In the very beginning, God created man from the dust of the ground and destined that man to be a father. He then looked upon that man and saw that it was not good for him to be alone. And so he put Adam into a deep sleep. He surgically removed one of his ribs. After he cleaned up the incision, he then created from that rib the first woman, you know Eve, and then brought her to Adam. Adam took one look at her and said, Whoop, man, that's where it came from. No, not really, okay. He looked at her and said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Did you hear that? She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I don't know if you've ever considered this, but from the very beginning, gender and sex were inextricably linked together. They were synonymous. Men were males. Women were females. This idea that gender is fluid, that gender is a spectrum, that is a social construct. From the beginning, men were males. Women were females. Your Bible makes it very clear that they are not two different things. They are the same thing, gender and sex. Now listen, folks. We are always going to be sensitive to men and women who are struggling with anything in their life, even struggling with their own identity. We have no problem. The church was meant to be a place where people could bring their struggles. Jesus said... The, the, the well do not need a physician. It's the broken that need a physician. And every one of us came into faith broken and damaged goods. But the Lord saved us and healed us in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are always going to love everyone wherever they are, in whatever condition they're in. But we are never going to compromise the word of the living God Almighty. We're going to speak the truth because we believe the truth will set you free in Jesus' name. Now, God officiated in the very first wedding ceremony, blessed them, and then instructed them to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, to have children and to keep having children. 
and to fill the earth and to subdue it. That's a powerful word. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then pronouncing them husband and wife, God then lays out the terms of the covenant, saying, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so right there, at the very beginning, God's plan was that righteousness, morality, the commands of God, the truth of God, would be communicated and exemplified from one generation to the other through the family. That godly parents would entrust these things to their children, who would then entrust these things to their children, who would then entrust these things to their children through each successive generation until they had filled the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the knowledge of God and even as the waters covered the sea. That literally we would subdue the earth, that we would take dominion over the earth through the family in Jesus' name. Now, even though the church is God's vehicle in this present age, obviously, and the vehicle through which the gospel of Jesus Christ is declared, the family is still a vital part of God's plan. And that cannot be ignored. The church was never meant to be a replacement for the family, but a supplement for the family. The faith starts at home, not in the church. We were here to supplement what you are doing at home in raising your sons and your daughters in the things of God and making sure your home is a church, that your home is a sanctuary where God is honored and lifted up in Jesus' name. And as parents, I believe we need to learn early on, I might add, how to leverage the powerful influence that we as parents have in the lives of our children so that we can prepare them for the future to finish strong in Jesus' name. And that's what we're going to see in our study here this morning. Think about it. Of all the places that the Apostle Paul could have started, the nursing process of bringing healing into the broken heart and mind of Timothy, he begins with his childhood and specifically with his mother and with his grandmother. This is the great Apostle Paul. I mean, Paul has raised the dead to life through the power of the Holy Spirit. He has healed the sick. He has gone into cities and turned them upside down by the power of God. But he doesn't start with any of those things in nursing the broken heart of Timothy back to spiritual health again. Instead, he starts in his childhood speaking of his mother and of his grandmother. I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but Paul himself was very fascinated with the deep correlation between the family and the church. In fact, as you walk through many of the Pauline letters in the New Testament, you will hear him talking about the church and the relationship among the men and women who go to those churches and are part of those churches in terms of a family relationship. We are all as believers seen as brothers and sisters. The younger brothers and sisters are to look up to the older brothers and sisters as mothers and fathers and to treat them as mothers and fathers. The older saints among us are to look upon the younger saints in the church as sons and daughters. 
We are even shown God as the Father, and we are shown Jesus as our brother in this faith. And so Paul understood that the way we relate to one another, the way that we relate to God, is that of a family. In verse 2, he called Timothy his son. He'll repeat that again in chapter 2 and verse number 1. Here in chapter 1 and verse 3, he says of the Lord, I serve him with a pure conscience as my forefathers did. So Paul recognized the significant contribution that the forefathers who served God with a pure conscience had on his life. And now, in this time of great turmoil in Timothy's life, Paul tells him to remember the significant impact that the genuine faith of his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois had had upon his life. In fact, I find it very interesting that as he starts out talking to him, he says, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you. Now, why that stands out to me is that at the time Paul is writing this, Timothy was anything, anything but a man of strong faith. In fact, Timothy, we're going to talk more about this next week when we talk about the spirit of fear, but... Timothy at this point was badly damaged. Life was falling apart for Timothy. And he was wavering. He was wavering to the point where he was drifting away from the ministry. To the point where he was even losing his passion for the things of God. I mean he was badly damaged. And here's Paul saying that you're a man of faith. He didn't feel like a man of faith. And Paul, knowing this, and knowing that Timothy was so defeated at this point that he couldn't see himself as a man of faith, says this, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Basically, what Paul is saying to Timothy is, Timothy, listen, I know you're so badly broken and I know that you are so fearful at this particular time that you can't see the faith that is within you, but that's all right. I want to remind you of your grandmother who first believed upon Christ and I want to remind you of your mother who followed her and how she loved the Lord because I am convinced that the faith that is in them is now dwelling in you. How many of you are thankful for spiritual mothers and fathers that can see what God is doing in your life even when you can't see it? In Jesus' name. You know, very little is known about their background, but Timothy, we know, hailed from the ancient city of Lystra. His mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois were both Jewish women, but Eunice had married a Gentile man which is the Bible's way of saying that he was not saved. He was not a believer. As far as we know, he never came to faith. He may have, but we have no evidence that would point to the fact that he became a believer. And so Timothy was raised in a very divided home. He had a mother and a grandmother that were committed to Christ, but a dad who was far away from the Lord. Now, presumably, mom and grandma had got saved in the city of Lystra when Paul went through there in his first missionary journey. And then they led their son, Timothy, to the Lord. And then they introduced Timothy to Paul when Paul revisited Lystra in his second missionary journey there. And and Paul was so taken by the faith 
And the power of God that was upon this young man, who at that time, Timothy was probably 20, 21 years old. He was so moved by the call of God on this young man's life, he took him under his wing and he traveled with him, preparing him for ministry in the future. So Paul had a very deep relationship with this family. And even while he was on death row, he encouraged himself by remembering the genuine faith. And genuine faith there means faith without hypocrisy. It was a faith without duplicity. He said, I have encouraged myself in remembering this unhypocritical faith that dwelt in your grandmother and in your mother. He said, I watched how they rose above a divided home. And in spite of her Greek husband's unregenerate heart, she made a choice to raise you in the faith to be a child of the living God. And Paul is saying, Timothy, I know you're hurting. I know you're afraid. I know that your commitment to God has gotten you into a very difficult time of persecution. And I know that right now, all of those who are following the Lord under your care are walking away from Christ. There was a mass defection. He says, I know that they're giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And I know that they're no longer enduring sound doctrine that you're teaching them week in and week out. And they're following after these false teachers and their false teachings. And I know it's hard for you, but I want you to remember your mother and your grandmother who loved God through difficult times and raising you in a home where dad didn't love God. I want you to remember the struggles that they endured. Do you remember, Timothy, when you came home at night and found mom and grandma crying out to God for you and crying out for your dad when they didn't know how to get through an issue? You'd hear him in the night from your bedroom crying out to God for wisdom. He says, I don't want you to forget that because that same faith that was in them is the same faith that is dwelling in you today in Jesus' name. Mom and dad, can I tell you something I don't know if you know this but there are difficult times coming for your children they're going to have their share of heartache they're going to have their share of trial they're going to have their share of struggles and temptation it's all inevitable but what you can do is provide for them a godly legacy of faith they need to see you praying they need to hear you praying in the middle of the night they need to find you studying the word of God and hiding it in your heart they need to see you enthusiastically getting up out of bed Sunday morning and saying come on everybody. We're going to the house of God this morning. They need to know that the secret of your strength is not that you are a strong man, but you serve a strong and almighty God. Because the storms are coming and when they come, they want to be able to remember how mom and dad got through it. They got through it on their knees, crying out to God. And if he did it for them, he can do it for me as well. In Jesus' name. Come on, everybody we got to leave that legacy so how did they do it how did Lois and Eunice join together to make sure that they were passing on this godly legacy to their son and how can we provide stable homes in unstable times that will provide stability for the next generation and some of you say well there's not really much to learn from mom and grandma here because this is all that we've got 
but there are actually clues that are given to us in chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Listen to this. But you, and he's speaking back to Timothy now, he says, but you, Tim, uh, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, as I'm reading that, some of you are saying that has nothing to do with mom and grandmom. There's nothing even said about Eunice and Lois here. Well, it's right there in verses 14 and 15. You may just not have seen it. Continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Now, it would be easy to stop right there and say, who's talking about Paul? But he says next, and that from childhood. Long before Paul ever showed up in Timothy's life, there was mom and grandma. They had been the ones that had made the most significant contribution to that young man's life. They started him out properly. And as I see it in this portion of Scripture, there were two things. And that's easy to remember. I'm not going to give you seven points of having a godly home. I'm just going to give you two. There's two things. There might be others, but these are the two most important things that you as a parent can do to start bringing stability into your sons and to your daughters. And grandparents, you can do this as well. Look at it. Number one, build your home on the Word of God. Build your home on the Word of God. Mom and Dad, I'm going to tell you, you need to be a a, a parental team that makes a decision. We are going to build our home upon the Word of the living God. He says, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. I love that word profitable because you know what that word profitable means? Profitable. It it just, it means that it's always going to produce gains. It is always going to produce an inheritance. The Bible says that the Word of God will never return unto Him void. And that's what he's saying. He's saying invest the, the Word of God into your home and into your children because it will make a significant difference within their heart and within their, in their lives. Folks, the Word of God, the Bible, is all that we have to help navigate in these days that we are living in and that we are coming into. This is all that we have. We have no other source of inspiration but the Word of the living God. Everything else is subjective. Only God's Word is the objective standard of what is true and what is right. And like the character of God from where it came from, it changes not. The psalmist said, Your Word, O Father, is settled in heaven. It does not change. The Bible is not a living document in the sense that it is fluid and changes from generation to generation. It is living in the sense that its ancient truths are for 
more today in Jesus' name. And we need to counter the culture and say it doesn't matter what man says or what government votes into and makes it perfectly legal. This is the Word of God and we're going to build our home and our family upon it in Jesus' mighty name. Paul encouraged Timothy to continue in the things he learned from childhood. And remember, he had a Jewish mother and a Jewish grandmother. And if there was anyone that knew the importance of training up their children in the Word of God, it was the Jew. Because remember under the law in Deuteronomy 6 and verses 6 through 9, it says, In these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You'll talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You're going to bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. They understood that to raise up their children in the Word of God was not just a once a week in church proposition. It was a daily proposition. He says when you put them to bed at night, put them to bed with the Word of God. When you get them up in the morning, talk to them about the Word of God. When you're sitting at the family table, talk Talk about the Word of God. When you're walking them to school or to the grocery store, you tell them about the Word of God. Spiritually, you put it upon their hands so that literally everything that they do, they do for the glory and for the honor of Almighty God. You put it spiritually before their eyes so that they have a biblical worldview in everything that they see. He says, I even want you to write it on the doorposts of your house so that everyone going in will know, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord God Almighty, in Jesus' name. Hmm. I'll never forget, this about 18 years ago or so, I heard a pastor who actually flew jet missions during the Vietnam War. And he was talking about his days in flight school. And he said, all through flight school, and it was drummed into us all the time, over and over again. Even though we'd heard it, they never, they never stopped telling us and reminding us, when you're flying, do not trust your feelings. Do not trust your instincts. Do not trust your gut. Because it's easy to become disoriented in the sky. Always trust your instruments. Your instruments never lie. They told them, listen, you can't even calculate the number of men who have killed themselves because when they got disoriented in the sky, they went with their instincts and with their feelings and they thought they were going up when they were going down and down when they thought they were going up and left when they thought they were going right and right when they thought they were going left. They were all over the place. They said, when you are in doubt, look at your instruments because your instruments will never lie to you. Can I tell you, this is our instrument panel. It will never lie to you. It's easy to get disoriented in the world that we live in today and if you if you are led by your feelings and by your emotions you are going to crash and burn. Whether you understand it or not you open up this Bible and let it be a light unto your path and a lamp unto your feet. Hide its word in your heart that you would not sin against God. It's all you've got to get through this day in Jesus mighty name. Come on somebody. Give God the praise for that. And I love, just let me very quickly say this, okay? 
I love how he breaks it down. He says that the Word of God is profitable first for doctrine. Now, doctrine would probably be better translated teaching. And what he's talking about is the general teaching of the Word of God. It's just talking about the totality of the teachings of Scripture. And it's the idea that the Word of God is profitable in plotting the course for your home. Mom and Dad, it would be good for you to say, we are plotting the course of our family by the Word of the living God, by the teachings in general. Whatever God says, we're going to follow that path. We are going to be a family that builds its life upon the Word of the living God. That's in general. But then he starts making it specific. He says it's also profitable for reproof. I love that word, reproof. And the best way to understand that word is just like it reads, reproof. It is nothing more and nothing less than reproving what you once knew but are drifting away from. And what he's simply saying is that even though we know what the Word of God teaches, we live in a wicked world and we find ourselves drifting from time to time. Our kids are going to schools where they're hearing anti-Christ and anti-God things. And, and they're hearing it and we're seeing it and we're hearing it. And every once in a while a family needs to gather back together and they need to be reproven what the Word of God says is true in Jesus. Jesus' mighty name. When I get in, into my office and I study and I prepare, it is so that when I stand before you on Sunday morning, I can reprove to you what is true because I know that every day you are out there and you are being bombarded with an ungodly philosophy and it's my responsibility to come back on Sunday and get us back on target to reprove to you what is right and true in Jesus' name. And mom and dad, that means that you're going to have to confront the culture but you got to do it with the word of a living God when junior comes home and says this is what the teacher said you open up the word of God and say as far as I know we've got one teacher his name is above all other names and we're going to submit ourselves to the word of the living God almighty then he says it's profitable for correction now that it's been reproven to me what is true, i got to course correct. i got to get back to the right place. And mom and dad, you weren't called to be your son or your daughter's friend. That comes later. <laughs> you are to be their mom and their dad, and part of that is correcting them and correcting them quickly while there is still hope. Get them back onto the right path. And then he says it's profitable for instruction. So that I don't drift anymore, I've got to be instructed. I have got to be mentored in this way. And here's what he says. If you'll be committed to teaching the Word of God in your home in that manner, he says at the end, they will be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work in Jesus' name. There is nothing that your son and your daughter will face in the future that they'll not be prepared for if you've built that family on the Word of the living God Almighty. But then there's one more thing. There's one more thing that I want to talk about that I can see in their life, and that is be an example. Be an example. As important as it is for you to teach the Word, you better be an example of what you're teaching them. 
He says, continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of. Listen to this. Knowing from whom you have learned them. What he's saying is, Timothy, I know right now you're under a vicious attack. And I know you're reeling from what's happening. But he said, even if you can't remember all the things we taught you in Bible school, Bible college, I want you right now to remember the example that was set forth by your mother and your grandmother in the most difficult times of life. You could almost read this. Timothy, continue to follow the instructions you were taught and the example that you were shown in your mother and grandmother since you were a child. He said, you follow that example. Now, what's interesting is that four years before he wrote the second letter, he had written a first letter to Timothy. And the whole situation was much different. Timothy was a young pastor, and the church was booming. I mean, they were rocking. If you read 1 Timothy, you'll find that it's very administrative. And it's because he's trying to teach him how to administrate, you know, this big church. People were just getting saved and transformed. It was a powerful time. And Timothy felt overwhelmed a little bit then. And this is what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. And, and I, I take great interest in this because Timothy was a first-time pastor in the city of Ephesus, a booming church, and he's a very young man. There's no way of knowing exactly how old he was, but we would assume that he was probably somewhere between 31, 32, maybe 33 years old at this point. First pastorate. And he's overwhelmed. I mean, the church is growing. And God is moving in a very powerful way. But Paul evidently heard some things. And he wrote to Timothy. He said, Timothy, don't let anyone despise you for your youth. What he was saying is, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. That's what he was saying. He saying, don't let anybody look down on you uh, because you're young. And I can identify with this. Many of you know I was 28 when I first came here. I turned 29 a couple months later, and then I was really mature. You know. But, um, you know, he was a young man. And he said, I know the temptation of the congregation. They're going to look at you and they're going to say, man, he can preach really good, but he's young. I mean, he doesn't know anything about marriage. He doesn't know anything about raising kids. And, and Paul says, yeah, I get that, Timothy. You know, you know the Word of God. I wouldn't put you in that church unless I knew that you knew the Word of God. And I know you can preach and I know you can communicate it, but you're young still. And people see that. And there is no way I can make up that deficit. You're just going to have to tough it out until you reach an age where people will begin to put more credence behind what you have to say. But he says, you know what? I don't want you to worry about trying to know more than everybody else right now. I want you to do one thing. I want you to be a good example. I want you to put as much effort into being a man of character as you do a good preacher. I want you to be an example. I want you to be able to stand before your congregation 
and show them how believers talk. I want you to, that's what he's saying in word. I want you to, to demonstrate. I want you to be an example of how godly men communicate. And how godly men and women conduct themselves. And how godly men and women love unconditionally. I want you to be an example to all that are in that church of what true believers think on and meditate when he says spirit. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about your way of thinking. I want you to be an example of how Christians think and what they meditate on. I want you to be an example of what it means to be a man of faith. And I want you to be an example of what it's like to be committed to living a pure life unspotted from this world. He says, that's what I want you to be first. Because he said, what will happen eventually is men and women will be so respectful of the man that you are that they'll automatically begin to listen to the words that you speak. Because they will begin to realize that the only difference between you and them is that you spend time alone with God building your life upon the Word of God and they will say, maybe if I did the same thing, I could be that kind of a man in Jesus' name. I love that. I never thought about it before, but as I was looking at it the other day, Paul seems to place as much emphasis on the character of the instructor as he does the content of the instruction. Now, don't misunderstand me. The Word of God is more important than our character because our character can flaw and it can go all over the place and the Word of God will always remain true. Can you say amen to that? And you know, it doesn't matter if everyone that represents the Word of God is a fraud, is a hypocrite. The Word of God is still true and everyone is still accountable to it. You can sit there and say, ah, the church is full of hypocrites. That does not in any way absolve you from the responsibility of being obedient to the Word of God. And when you stand before Him, He's not going to give you a pass because everyone you ever met was a hypocrite. He's going to say, but you didn't have to be one. How would you know they were hypocritical unless you knew the truth and you should have walked in it? We're all still accountable to it. So the Word of God is more important than our character. But, can I tell you, as I look over the the, the, the scene of Christian faith for now over 50 years, I see many men and women who are shipwrecked in their faith. Most of them are not shipwrecked in their faith because of a lack of content from the message, but a lack of character in the, the communicator, in the one who was teaching the Word. How many men and women do we know right now that are shipwrecked in the faith, want nothing to do with it? Not because the content of the message was lacking, but because the character of the messenger was lacking. Folks, you and I need to be as committed to being men and women of character as we are in making sure that the content of our message is accurate as well. And mom and dad, I'm going to tell you right now, you may not be a doctorate or have a doctorate in biblical studies, but you can be an example. 
And that's what God wants you to be more than anything else. You can teach them Bible, scriptures, all you want to, but they, they will never forget how you conducted your life in Jesus' name. You be an example to your children of how godly men and women talk. How godly men and women conduct themselves. How godly men and women love disinterestedly. That they don't care about getting anything in return. They do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. That you be an example to them in how godly men and women think, how godly men and women practice their faith, how godly men and women are committed to being pure and unspotted from this world. That's what God called you to do first and foremost. As I said a moment ago, your children may never remember one thing you ever taught them, but they'll never forget how you lived your life. we four pastors that once met and they were just sitting together talking about pastoral ministry and they were talking about uh, theology and eventually the question came up what is your favorite translation of the Bible what's your favorite translation and the one pastor said well I love the old King James version I know it's old and it's dated but I love how poetic it is and the Shakespearean tone of the old King James. It just has a gravitas that none of the other translations have. And it just has such great authority when you read it. And one said, well, I understand what you're saying. I actually like the NIV, the New International Version. Because it has that same authority, but at the same time, it's more readable than the old King James. The third one said, I like the New Living Translation, the NLT. And the reason I like that one is, that's just how I talk today. When I read it, that's how I would say it. And they turned to the only one that hadn't spoken. They said, what's your favorite translation? And he said, I like my mom's translation. <laughs> and they said, we know your mother. Your mother's never translated the Bible. He says, are you kidding me? My mother translated the Bible every day and how she lived her life before us. I'm going to tell you, like I said, you can read these scriptures every day to your children, but what is speaking louder to them is how you're living your life. And the whole reason that Paul could turn to Timothy in those difficult days and say, Remember the example of your mom and dad, is he was, or your mom and your grandmom, I should say, is because his mother and his grandmother had been faithful in Jesus' name. Listen, Proverbs says in Proverbs 13 and 22, a good man leaves an inheritance of moral stability and goodness to his children's children. And the wealth of the sinner finds its way eventually into the hands of the righteous for whom it was laid up. Isn't it interesting? We will save, 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 save because we want to give our children a fraction of the world's wealth when we die. Proverbs says, why don't you leave them an inheritance of moral stability and goodness so they'll be right for God so that in the end they get all the wealth 
of the wicked. In Jesus' name. What is greater? Giving your kids a few bucks that will probably spoil them in the end anyway? Or giving them an inheritance of moral stability and goodness that will carry them the rest of their days? And he says this, if you'll do that, when the time comes, your sons and your daughters will be complete in Christ and they'll be thoroughly equipped to handle whatever comes their way. Is it a guarantee that they will serve the Lord? No. But it is a guarantee that when the difficult days will come, there's at least something for them to fall back on in Jesus' name. And I believe that that's what Lois and Eunice did that in spite of the challenges they had in a divided home, and because they were committed to raising Timothy in the Word of God and being a good example to him, when Timothy found himself in a time of spiritual crisis, he had a legacy of faith to fall back on. And that's why Paul said this in verse 6, and with this we're closing. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God. There was already something there to be stirred up. You can't stir up something that was never there. Mom and dad, make sure that your children have something to be stirred up when they come into the difficult days in Jesus' mighty name. Get your house in order. Bless God. Come on, give Him all the praise in this house. Bless God. Thank you for your patience. Can you stand to your feet with me this morning? And can you just lift your hands up to the Lord? We're just going to close here in a word of prayer, but I just want you right there very quickly. Because some of you I know, you don't have any children living at home anymore, but your grandparents, or you're going to be a grandparent one day. And I want you just to commit one more time right there in prayer, saying, Lord, we are going to do our absolute best to build this family upon the Word of God.